Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from former Entertainment One TV chief John Moranis about the launch of his new company Blink Studios with backing from Endeavour Content. BBC Studios' Jan Salling discusses the growing popularity of scripted formats in the Nordics and director Jessica Hobbs reflects on her recent Emmy win for The Crown and why the Netflix royal drama remains so powerful. John Moranis, the former head of Entertainment One's TV business, recently unveiled Blink Studios, a new production outfit set up in partnership with three former E1 colleagues and with backing from Endeavour Content. Moranis is chief executive of the new Toronto-based venture, which also has offices in Los Angeles, with Patrice Theroux on board as executive vice chair, Nelson Kuo-Lee as chief financial officer and Jeff Linus as chief operating officer. Blink has also hired former CBC and Twitter exec Kirstine Stewart as a non-executive board chair. Moranis spoke to Jordan Pinto about his plans to turn Blink into a world-class Canadian independent studio. John, thanks so much for making time for me today. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I'm excited to get going after a few years. Yeah, it, it has been a few years, as you said, since you've been in, I suppose, an industry-facing role, maybe for lack of a better term. Um, but I know in that time, you've been very busy putting together the pieces for Blink Studios. So to start with, can you tell us a bit about the formation of this new entity and the assembly of the executive team and the board? Sure. So obviously, like most businesses and ideas, it's evolved over time. Uh, but it started several years ago, uh, it started with, with me and Patrice talking about, you know, wanting to do something. Uh, we'd both been, you know, post E1 out of sort of an operational uh, executive type role. We've both been, you know, sort of behind the scenes dabbling in various content enterprises, either as investors or, you know, helping as uh, producers or executive producers or advisors. Um, sitting on, you know, various committees or boards. So we've all, you know, we've, we've kept uh, a close connection, uh, but, you know, I would say more behind the scenes. So we started talking about our desire to get back and, and doing something, uh, a, a, you know, a little more with consistency and, you know, with a, with a real corporate vehicle uh, behind us. Um, and that, those conversations started off in a very casual way. And we sort of started talking about what would a new business look like, especially how the business has changed so dramatically in the last even five or six years. So, you know, we, we had a bunch of ideas. We started talking about raising money uh, in the private equity market. Uh, and a lot of what we talked about had a lot of similarities to what we had done in the past or the companies we'd worked at, both E1 and even before that, Alliance Atlantis and Alliance. So, you know, so it kind of evolved and we started having casual conversations with financiers. And what happened as we sort of, as this thing sort of started um, taking shape, we realized that uh, the world has changed a lot um, and that we had to look at things a little differently. And so we kind of took a step back and said, well, you know, if we're going to build a content business, what does it look like today versus, you know, 10 years ago when we built, you know, uh, E1 or before that, you know, we were part of Alliance Atlantis. And I think one of the things that came apparent to us uh, was one, we definitely want to define ourselves 
you know, in a creative world and have some distinction because there's a lot of independent studios out there. And there's also a lot of larger super indies that have big distribution infrastructures uh, and have global reach. And so we decided, you know, um, one, stick to your knitting, which was we know Canada really well. We understand that market. We also understand how the rest of the world looks at Canada in various different ways, both from a creative point of view, as well as a, a business and financing point of view. And we also realize that notwithstanding our expertise and our love of the distribution part of the business, we realized that if we were going to be successful, um, we should really align with a company that is, you know, a much has a much larger distribution infrastructure, uh, a much larger global reach that has real leverage in the marketplace, especially when it comes to premium content and extracting value. We also understood that in this day and age, a big chunk of your portfolio, if you are an independent studio, will get commissioned by global streamers or other global platforms that won't really want you to hold on to distribution rights. And the models, the financial models are changing and can be quite compelling, uh, even though you don't hold on to distribution. And for all those reasons, we realize that we're really going to double down or triple down on the sort of the R&D part of the business, the development, the investment and risk-taking in IP, uh, in talent, and really ensuring the the sort of proper execution of both a development strategy and then obviously a production business where we could elevate and focus on on those aspects of the business and leave the distribution in in a lot of cases to a third party and that's and that's sort of how it evolved and ultimately how we started talking to um, a number of strategic potential strategic investors including Endeavor Content. The more we talked to Chris and Graham uh, at Endeavor Content, the more we realized that they looked at a Canadian based studio the way we looked at a Canadian-based studio. And based on that, it became apparent uh, that they were the right company for us. Now, before that even happened, uh, as we were sort of moving forward and starting to sort of fine-tune our, our business plan, uh, there was this uh, pandemic that you may have heard of um, that, you know, kind of changed the world. And it all, what it did for us is it didn't sort of necessarily slow us down, but it did sort of give us an opportunity to just take a step back. Uh, we weren't in a hurry to, again, continue to fine tune and hone our business plan and our thesis for what we wanted to do. And so when we finally picked it up with Endeavor content, you know, still during the pandemic, when when everyone had sort of more of a chance to sort of assess what was going on and, you know, how people and, and companies were coming out of it, as I said, it became even more clear that as a strategic investor, strategic partner, Endeavor content was absolutely the right fit for us. And obviously we were the right fit for them. So that's kind of how it came together. And then there was a, a long period of negotiation, like in most deals of this nature, uh, to get to where we are today. But that's kind of the uh, brief or maybe not so brief uh, story behind sort of how it evolved. And then as we were putting it together, you know, uh, I was having ongoing conversations with a former colleague of mine, uh, Jeff Linus, who has come on as our COO. And uh, Patrice and I were having conversations conversations with Nelson Coley, uh, who has come aboard as our CFO. And the four of us really decided that we should all be partners together in this new venture, uh, which was important to me. I, I like doing things with partners. Um, and so with Patrice on board and with Jeff and Nelson on board, um, I thought we just had a great uh, team to start this up. Yeah, that, that's a wonderful overview of the, uh, of the strategy and the, and the formation of the company. Thinking a bit about the content slate, which I know you won't be able to talk about in you know exceptional amounts of detail, 
But are you able to give us a flavor of the types of content that you're developing through this company? Sure. So, you know, obviously it's a startup. It's still early days for us. So, um, you know, excited to be able to talk specifically about projects. Hopefully that'll happen soon. But in terms of just sort of a general overview, we, you know, we're, we're set up as a full service studio. And what that means for us is, you know, there's an agenda to scale the business. And, and therefore what that means is we need to play in all genres and areas of content. So, you know, primarily we're focused on scripted and unscripted, you know, factual uh, half hour comedy, uh, dramas, uh, miniseries, limited series, uh, MOWs, uh, long running series and targeting all platforms. We're also focused on kids, family, YA, basically, you know, all areas of what I would consider areas of for TV development areas in all arenas where platforms around the world are looking to uh, commission original content, we're going to be in those areas, but, you know, focusing primarily in the primetime space on scripted and, you know, unscripted content. Those are sort of the two core areas, but we're excited to get into animation. Uh, as I said, YA and kids and family, as well as sort of the primetime side of our business. Um, and, and the goal there is to really, you know, find the talent um, that can that can really execute with us in those areas or, or, or looking at companies that we can partner with that have expertise in all those genres of programming. The, the original announcement mentions the, the Canadian creative sector and the Canadian production industry a lot, um, which obviously will be very welcomed by the local industry here. It mentions that you will use a significant portion of the, of the capital to make investments in Canadian production companies. Um, could, could you talk a bit more about that? And I, I think, are you talking about making equity investments in companies or potentially, and I know this is a, a strategy that you've employed to great effect in the past where you've, where you've rolled up a number of production companies. Could, yeah, could you talk a bit about what the what this M&A strategy could look like or maybe it's strategic investments, but what that will uh, entail? Sure. I mean, it's a combination of everything you just described. So uh, we are definitely looking to make uh, equity investments in a handful of Canadian-based production companies. And our plan, this is something, again, that evolved over time as we were sort of honing our plan and our thesis for the business, is to start by making minority investments in a handful of companies and all the genres of programming that I just mentioned. And, and the reason we, we thought that made sense is, one, uh, a lot of the companies we're talking to actually you know, feel they've got a lot of runway ahead of them to build their business. And, to, and the truth is, they don't necessarily want to sell a majority stake right now uh, or controlling interest. Or, or clearly not 100% because they don't really you know, feel they're at the stage where they're going to get the value out of selling 100% of their business when they know they, they feel that the, their real value is, is ahead of them. And you know, to be blunt, the companies that do want to sell 100% of their business right now, it usually means they kind of feel they've, they've hit a certain peak and, and they want to sell because you know, they kind of feel this may be the best value or close to the best value they're going to get. That's not the case with every business. Business, but it's certainly instinctively, you could probably figure out that if you're ready to sell 100% of your business, you probably feel, you know, it's because you're at your cap in value. Um, so as we started talking to companies, in, in a weird way, the companies that were more resistant to, you know, the idea of 
of raising money or you know bringing in a strategic partner uh, or selling a big chunk of their business, those are the companies we really were aggressively pursuing because we want to be we want to be helpful in helping build those businesses. So the idea being, we start with a minority stake, you know, which is an important material investment in their companies, but we're, but we're also there to help them strategically uh, utilize our expertise, our uh, team, both in terms of our creative team, which um, our production team, our expertise on the business and strategic side, and of course, the weight and the leverage of Endeavor content as our partner to help support these businesses in terms of development, production execution, um, access to markets, you know, co-production opportunities, um, leverage, you know, particularly in the U.S. market where Endeavor content is so strong, you know, our, our relationships that we built over way too many years that I even want to think about. Um, so all those things become in some ways as important or perhaps even more important than the initial investment. Our plan and, and you know, what we've been talking to these companies about is our ability to accelerate their growth or to help support them in accelerating their growth. And obviously they have to believe in us. And, and so far we're getting, you know, great response uh, from our, you know, the target companies we've been talking to, to. And so that's kind of the idea behind our initial M&A strategy. It's taking minority investments with a clear pathway to ultimately, you know, consolidating because ultimately that is what we want to do. We do want to, uh, we do believe that scale is important and we do believe that ultimately there's value in, in having a, a large scalable business uh, with, with a consistent brand and a great executive team uh, helping us uh, build this business. So the principles of the companies that we're looking at are going to be very involved, not just with their own businesses, but will also be involved in our business. We said, you know, the great thing about a startup that's well capitalized is, you know, we we have the ability to, to make a significant impact on their business. As a startup, they also have an opportunity to make a significant impact on our business. And that seems to resonate uh, with a lot of the principles of these companies because they're, you know, they're excited about growth. They're not surprisingly younger than us. Um, so they see, you know, a, a really bold, optimistic future ahead of them. And they like the idea of the partnership that we can offer them. John, aside from Endeavor content, are there any other financial backers or investors that you're able to mention at this stage? Um, we do have several other investors, some of whom are also strategic. Um, and we've got a process uh, for announcing those other investors. Um, a very interesting name that was involved with the company is Kirsten Stewart, of course, formerly of uh, CBC and Twitter Canada or Twitter North America. What, um, at what stage did she become involved in the company? And um, how, yeah, I suppose obviously her uh, resume speaks for itself, but what will she bring to uh, to Blink Studios? Um, so we're obviously really excited to have uh, Kirsten on board with us. So um, we started thinking about our board structure as we were in the middle of the negotiation with Endeavor Content. And, you know, as we were starting that negotiation and, you know, thinking about how we were structuring our business, a couple of things occurred to us. One, we wanted to have an independent uh, chair. And so, it, you know, once we made that decision about wanting an independent a chair, there were a couple of, you know, uh, or a few items that became really important was one, we wanted someone that understood the Canadian market and the Canadian industry. We also wanted someone that was a, had a slightly different background than us from the platform side, as opposed to sort of what, what we were known for, which is, you know, development, production, distribution, more of a studio side. So that was really important to us. And then when we started, you know, honing down who those people were, it became obvious that, you know, Kirsten was such a great fit for us because she 
she also has the tech side. Like she really has built a career for herself, um, you know, understanding not just the Canadian market, but a global market, being involved on the platform side, but then, you know, moving to Twitter and building a, a real profile for herself and a real expertise in the area where media um, and content and tech intersect. And that became a very exciting, you know, area of expertise for us. And just, you know, having someone that just thinks differently than we do and comes from that, you know, tech side of the business was quite exciting for us. So what she brings to the table is obviously a strategic point of view, which is really what you want your board to, to be able to do. She, you know, has a lot of expertise as a buyer, former buyer, um, but her involvement, uh, you know, with the intersection of, of media, content and tech means that she's going to, you know, help us look at things differently, hopefully with, a, you know, through a lens that's a little more, you know, non-traditional, uh, a little more um, uh, focused on opportunities in that space. Because, you know, when we talk about an M&A strategy, an investment strategy, strategic partnership strategy, you know, we tend to focus a lot on what I would call the traditional side of, of the content business. She's going to bring a, a different approach to ha- how we look at that, how we look at the pr- uh, prospective partners, strategic alliances. Uh, and she has some great ideas and amazing relationships in the tech space. So for all those reasons, it you know became quickly apparent that she was the right person. We started talking to her about our plans for Blink Studios, and and um, uh, she became incredibly excited and and enthusiastic about what we wanted to do. And that was the other part of it. I mean, obviously, you wanted someone on board that seemed to get what we're trying to do and could add real value to what we were trying to do. And and she checked all those boxes. You've already spoken about this and touched on this in, in some of your various answers, but I'll ask it just in a maybe in a more direct way. Um, what are some of the long, long-term long goals for Blink Studios? And do you have any clearly defined targets that you would like to, to reach? So our long-term goal is to build an incredibly successful Canadian-based, Canadian-headquartered global indie content studio. I mean, that's you know easier said than done. But we do think, we strongly believe that focusing or putting an emphasis on Canada and especially an emphasis on Canadian talent, Canadian IP is a way that will help define us in a global marketplace. Um, We do feel that the Canadian brand in our industry and the talent um, that we know really well in Canada has an opportunity to sort of go through another new and improved phase. Part of that has to do with the global streamers launching original programming uh, operations in Canada. Obviously, you have Netflix and Amazon and, and you know all the global streamers at some point or the key ones will be in Canada commissioning original programming. I think that raises the bar for everyone in terms of the, the kinds of uh, programs that you can you will think about that could possibly come out of Canada and the talent that we're excited about both the the, the old you know traditional people that you know c- consistently deliver both in Canada and around the world in terms of the, their ability to develop and produce great content and also the new new and diverse voices that exist in Canada just like they do everywhere else in the world um, that we're going to aggressively pursue and you know use a portion of our capital to take real creative risk on because uh, we believe strongly in, in Canada is a very diverse country that has an opportunity to reach a global o- audience. We're not afraid of specificity of talking about Canadian stories and Canadian settings. And you know, historically, Canada sometimes been used as a you know as a as a U.S 
replacement uh, opportunity and looked very much like an opportunity for a below the line business or a great financing a hub, um, a great place to you know produce or service produce. But we really feel that this next phase of whatever it is to be sort of a, a, a Canadian creative talent or a Canadian producer or um, anyone who wants to sort of develop and execute on production in Canada, I think we're, we're focusing on a, on a much bigger above the line opportunity that exists in, in Canada where we can lead creatively and keep some of that great talent that tends to leave Canada and go elsewhere, especially the United States, in order to make stuff. Uh, we think that this new world order will, uh, and especially if you if they get the support from companies like Blink Studios, that there is an opportunity to really build a studio in Canada that looks and feels more like a U.S. studio or a U.S. production company or a U.K. studio or a U.K. production company. And so that's what we're really excited about. We, we look at Canada as a way to define who we are and we understand that market so very well, but about taking that talent and taking those voices and being able to allow them to reach a global market. We're, we feel very bullish um, that we can eke out an opportunity uh, in that space that will allow us to grow significantly and scale that business to become uh, hopefully the, the biggest player in, in that market, delivering those kinds of shows and, and, that, and those kinds of opportunities to Canadian talent. BBC Studios Nordics last week struck deals for remakes of scripted formats for The Office, Luther and Dr Foster, with local versions in the works in Denmark and Finland. Danish podco STV Production will move forwards with its own take on the Ricky Gervais' Stephen Merchant comedy, while Finland's Take-Two Studios is doing likewise with the Idris Elba and Saran Jones dramas. BBC Studios Nordic's Head of Formats and Production Jan Salling spoke to Ruth Laws about these deals and how buyers' attitudes towards scripted formats have changed throughout the pandemic and the premium streaming services are placing on drama in a bid to attract audiences. Salling also spoke about why British content remains so popular across the region and how domestic players are attempting to shift exports beyond noir. We just started rolling out our scripted formats on the basis of this opportunity that we saw in the marketplace. We started rolling it out in August, and already now we have uh, three co-development deals uh, slash options signed, two in Finland, one in Denmark. So the two Finnish ones are for Luther and Dr. Foster, which you know is great, some very successful UK series. And the Danish option co-development co-production deal is for The Office, which has 20 years anniversary this year as well, which we celebrated at MIPCOM. So um, so those are the deals that we have done now. We will continue rolling out our, our formats. We haven't by far met everyone yet. We've only met half of the market, meaning the Swedes and the Danes. And then we stumbled over some Finns who wanted uh, fast action. Uh, but I will be in Oslo next week to meet all the Norwegians. And I expect to see more deals coming uh, when we return from the Nor- Norwegian meetings. And why do you think there is an appeal for British content in the Nordics? There's always been an appeal for British content in the Nordics. The Nordics have always fancied British humour, the sarcastic tone of voice, you know, so things like going back like Forty Towers, Monty Python, you know, that kind of humour resembles very much the kind of humour that we have in the Nordics. Satirical, dark, ironic sense of humour and and, and vice versa, I would say. You know, if you see at what we in in the last decade have experienced 
exported to BBC Four, for instance, uh, and have uh, running there with like Borgen, The Killing, The Bridge, which has started airing with subtitles in, in your part of the world, Ruth, uh, which was not something that you were used to in England just 10 years ago, less than 10 years ago. You were not used to to watching non-English languaged uh, dramas, but now you are digesting it all over the place. You're seeing Spanish uh, dramas on Netflix uh, and all over the place. So I would say UK and, and the Nordics have always been very close when it comes to cultural uh, resemblance and, and humor in particular, I would say. We like strong personal stories as well, you know, that you can relate to and identify with, you know, stories about families and tragedies and dramas and stuff like that, that are close to heart. And, and you know, and in contradiction to that, we do not like American action things, you know, you know, like superficial car chases all over, bang, bang, jung, jung, you know, is, is doesn't resonate with the Nordic audience at all. We like the kind of crime thriller, dark personal dramas like you know, like, like you like in the UK. So I think that's why the the BBC scripted formats resonated very well here. And I must say, and and with the timing that we have hit and and the first mover position that we have uh, been able to conquer here in the Nordics has been just uh, mind-blowing. We had a feeling and I could analyze and I could read between the lines and I've been speaking with the players here for a long time. But, you know, to, just to give you a bit of background, I thought... I thought a year and a half ago, I thought that I could easily just walk into all these broadcasters that I've known for the past 20, 25 years. And, and and just start selling scripted formats. But at that time, just, you know, that's only 12, 12, 18 months ago, there was not a huge appetite for scripted formats. You had this, the you had this this standard cliche answer, which you also get when you pitch stuff in can, is that, you know, keep me posted, interesting, keep me posted, blah, 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 you know, uh, you know, polite ways of saying, no, thank you, get lost. But then when I returned to, this, to exactly the same broadcasters and streamers 12 months later, it was 180 degrees reversed. They said, bloody hell, yes, we are now at the center of the programming. Uh, and what has changed, Ruth, just so you understand what has changed, and things change faster in the Nordics than they tend to change in the in the rest of the world, because we in the Nordics, we adapt to, to technological uh, features and uh, very fast. So that is why Netflix and HBO and Amazon and Apple and all of those are fishing in the Nordics always because they want to see consumer behavior and then adapt that to the rest of the world afterwards because what is going to happen in the Nordics is eventually also going to happen in the rest of Europe. So what we see now is in is that uh, the broadcasters here are no longer buying for their linear channels. They are buying to fill the VOD beasts, as I call them. They're buying to, to retain subscribers. So, so it's all, you know, so the new Password here is subscriber retention. God damn, that's a boring phrase. But <laughs> subscriber retention, that is sort of the new buzzword for them. So they no longer buy for eight o'clock drama slot on Sunday nights, they buy to fill their VODs. And then one year later, or sometime later, whatever their strategy is on specific projects, they will have a linear life as well. But they start on digital, and then they move to linear. So that means for producers, that, that means that there are, you know, a vast hole that you can fill, you know, there, there is no longer just specific slots to pitch for there are, you know, there's a vast v, v, VOD machine that you can just fill up with content as much hundreds and hundreds 
of titles if they have if they can afford it. It's just the budgets that is um, uh, setting a limit to how much you can sell. And and when we talk about budgets, we see that to fill these local VODs with content, mainly scripted content, to retain subscribers, they have now increased the budget. So to give you a good example, TV2 12 months ago when I, TV2 Denmark 12 months ago when I met them, were doing four to five originals a series per year. 12 months later, they do at a minimum of 12. They are no longer to TV2 Denmark, and this this goes across all the Nordics with all the broadcasters. They are no longer just a nice to have drama appendix to the rest of the programming department. The scripted departments have moved into the center of the machine at the programming department. They know that scripted will be the ones that keeps the um, the attention span from the viewers and keeps the VOD beasts alive. So that means that the head of fictions and the head of dramas, whatever you know they are, they uh, they certainly have you know a lot of eyeballs on them from top management, you know, to secure return on investment for these huge budgets that they are now uh, having, and uh, and that uh, that means that they will of course renew ongoing successes and continue with the season two, season three, season four, and so forth. But then they also want to limit their risks, and as we say in the non-scripted world, you know, cover their asses with something that is safe and has a proven track record. And here, scripted formats come into the picture, just as Strictly Come Dancing comes into the picture when it's about you know covering their butt with something you know from 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 that area. So scripted formats is is something that they will now pay more attention to. And we you know these three deals are you know in such a short time. I've never experienced so fast deals in such a short time uh, on something that is new to the marketplace. But it just tells you something about. Now, the speed that things change here, you know, it, it's no, it's no longer about new trends and tendencies every six to twelve months. It's new trends and tendencies every month or every week sometimes, you know. And 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 I just read an article with from MTV3 in Finland, which is part of Telia, and they are owned by TV4, uh, the same as TV4 in Sweden. And he said, you know, that he, he intends to launch a minimum of one drama per month. You think that um, because of like the, the proliferation of VOD platforms, there's mm. an increase in demand for drama content because drama yes. content is what keeps subscribers exactly uh, kind of locked in. Yes, and that yeah, that that is the, that's the bottom line of everything I've said, Ruth. Is exactly that, and 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 but also what I think is important to get across is that the mindset has changed uh, for you know. So you, what what usually was you know okay, we have how many slots do we have per year for Sunday night dramas at eight where you have premium drama, local premium drama. Okay, we have these amount. Okay, then that is. The, and what what do we need in terms of budget for that? That is no longer how they resonate. They say, okay, how many dramas do we need to keep subscribers happy, and how much budget do we need for that, and how fast can we get those series produced and stuffed into the VOD VOD machine and get some eyeballs on it to you know to retain our subscribers. And 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 when it comes to to speed. Of course, what you do get when you buy into scripted formats, you know, with the BBC scripted formats, you get world-class brand, you get world-class content, you get award-winning, BAFTA, Emmys, Oscars, all of the things that they've won. You get all of that, but you also get speed because you don't, you no longer need to spend 12, uh, 18 months of developing something that might be greenlit and put into production. You could spend two to three months in localization of something that is already made, you know, so the, the, the budget 
benefit for, for that is going to be decreased and, and especially the speed that you can green light something and put it into production and afterwards into the VOD machine is just much, much faster. And that in the, so speed is 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 a, is a crucial thing for them as well. Um, you mentioned, obviously, that there's massive budgets now for drama. And I think that's probably to compete with, you know, the likes of the global players like Netflix who spend yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. millions. How is that affecting co-production partnerships? Is that the only way that like, you know, a local broadcaster or a local streamer can in any way compete with the with the global players they they need you know, of course you need budgets to p- produce premium and we have no intention whatsoever to use our bbc uh, award-winning dramas to produce low budget versions of them they need to be just as premium or even better than the original version so it takes a, you know a significant budget to, to do that but they it, but with the with that comes the safety of of having you know an entire series that you can screen and then you can improve upon that and localize it and flavorize it to your own taste. And I would say, you know, we, we see that the budgets have increased. I think next year we expect around 80 to 90 new Nordic series produced across the Nordics, uh, across the four territories. And, and the budget for that next year will be around 200 million euros. Uh, and moving towards 25, if we look, you know, in the crystal ball, we expect around 145 new series around 2025, you know, so an increase of 50% almost, or a bit more than 50%. And the budget will be around 350 million euros by then. So, so the budgets are really, uh, are, are really growing. And what feedback are you getting from Nordic buyers about the, you know, the genres of scripted content that they want? It, it, it all depends on, on who you're speaking to. If you're speaking with the streamer, broadcaster, and if it's a public service or a niche, you know, you have the likes of Discovery, Discovery Plus and HBO Max here. They are very keen on comedy formats. Uh, comedy has, has has done no wonders for them. But you have other broadcasters here who are much more for strong female uh, dramas like Dr. Foster or The Split or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and then you have broadcasters looking for young adults. So 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 it totally varies with who you're speaking to. But, but I say, well, I would say across all they all say that they have specific they are looking for specific things but they're looking for specific things in very short windows when you speak with the same broadcasters a month later they are looking for something different so as a salesperson you can't really use their feedback on that for much besides you you just need to pitch the best you have basically and and sometimes they need what they didn't know they needed and where do you think nordic noir is heading is that still growing in popularity? nordic noir if you if you speak with the players here they they like the Nordic noir perception because that is what a decade ago positioned us as world leading and you know and gave us a lot of attention of being a creative hotspot and all of that and we created a lot of export opportunities uh, and awards that shone a light on the Nordics so a lot of money was channeled towards the Nordics with with that and all of that so the Nordic noir, noir perception is something that we are proud of and in but having said so when I speak to producers and broadcasters here they also very sick of hearing Nordic Noir. Nordic Noir is gone. What we are, what we are, you know, uh, I think the new thing that they are trying to take, you know, is sort of Nordic Blue. 
So Blue Sky Crime, for instance, you know, so crime series, which would in 10 years ago have been very dark and underlit, like the killing the bridge and, yeah. and all of those will be Blue Sky Summer, but <laughs> crime, you know. So Blue Sky Crime seems to be a small bus around that. And, and you know, and there has been some successful series on that for TV2 Denmark as well. Uh, so so they, they've done well on that. Um, and do you still have your partnership with Banerjee Nordic? And how does that we work? We have a partnership with Banerjee Nordics. It's a non-exclusive partnership as of 1st of January this year because I renegotiated. And it has always only been about non-scripted. It has never been about scripted. And what's happening on the unscripted side of um, BBC Studios Nordic? On the unscripted side, we have the tentpole titles here, working with them. We have uh, Strictly in all four territories here. We have Bake Off in three territories, Top Gear in three, Antiques Roadshow, Suing B. Uh, we have we have so we have the tentpole titles alive and kicking here in the Nordic. So that is a good long-running business for us. And then we have the new titles, which comes twice a year, as you know, around the MIPS. Right now, it's I like the way you move, which just launched an iPlayer just a couple of weeks ago, and that is resonating very well here right now with all broadcasters. Uh, so we expect something good from that. So so that is probably the biggest buzz we had now. The the prior launches was DNA Journey, which is now in season three on ITV One. That is also in talks many places here in the Nordics, and and then this is my house, which was also a, a good success for BBC One and has just I believe been renewed. So. Uh, so I think that is also one one I'm expecting to see more of here. So what kinds of formats works really well? Is it like the big shiny floor entertainment series? Big shiny floor has always worked well here and will continue to work here. We see the mask singer being rolled out here as well. Uh, so that's still doing well. Uh, so 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 talent shows, uh, ordinary people doing extraordinary things is something we like. And then we've always been suckers for feel good entertainment or what I say entertainment with a purpose, you know. So we like to be entertained, uh, but we also like there to be some kind of purpose with the entertainment. So I know that could sort of uh, justify that we spend minutes and hours of consuming it. So uh, entertainment with a purpose, and that's mostly in the factual entertainment area, and you'll find those. Uh, and that is mostly here weekday primetime in the Nordics. You'll find factual entertainment shows across uh, Monday to Thursdays. Right. And then you'll have the shiny floor shows on, on, on Fridays and Saturdays and an entertainment show, family entertainment shows like Bake Off, for instance, which is the the most successful show in Denmark, for instance, has a 70% share. And and number two is Strictly Come Dancing. So so I'm 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 on a good roll here in Denmark. Netflix picked up its first Outstanding Drama Series Award at the Emmys last month with the fourth season of the hit show The Crown, securing 11 prizes in all, including accolades for writer Peter Morgan, stars Olivia Colman and Gillian Anderson, plus director Jessica Hobbs. The latter was handed the prize for her work on the season four finale called The War, weaving together the complex relationships between Queen Elizabeth II, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and Princess Diana. Hobbs spoke to Michael Picard about the episode and others, the appeal of the British monarchy melodrama and why making the show is becoming harder as it moves towards its fifth and final sixth season. 
what can you tell me about how many episodes have you have you done on season five? The first two. We've just come back from shooting in Spain, so it's like... And how is it, I guess, being the first to kind of grapple with the new cast? How, how is that? <laughs> Challenging. The new cast are fantastic, but it's, you know, we've done it once before on season three, so we're aware of the challenges. But it's, you know, it's always a leap for the audience. They, there's a bit of grieving of the people that they, that they love playing those roles, and we need to help them fall in love with the new representations of them. But it's also really exciting what they bring and a kind of there's a maturity and a complexity as they get older which I'm really enjoying is it a bit of a change for you I guess setting up the season because previously you've kind of come in at the end and done the finales haven't you so yeah is which is always lovely because you know that the, they're about resolution and you get a lot of payoffs and which is nice this is much more about setting up and introducing a whole lot of new people but Peter's very clever and so far so good congratulations on your Emmy first of all I mean has that sunk in I mean how do you feel kind of coming back to the show after that with with that in your luggage that must be fun I don't know if it has properly sunk in to be honest I think um, it was brilliant on the night I was um, very surprised I don't think anyone expects to hear their name do they I mean maybe some people do I certainly didn't and so that was all a little bit like being sucked backwards through time and I thought oh I think she said my name (laughs) so on the night it was very exciting and uh, look we were on a real high oddly we were lucky enough because of COVID and because we were all in a testing bubble in a regime that we were all together and we hadn't been together yeah. last year we finished shooting with no rap I mean I was still trying to film season four when we shut down and then we had the challenge of trying to make those episodes work even though they weren't complete so it was pretty wonderful to have it recognized in that way and then it was straight back to work next day so it was like oh, wow. <laughs> is, this, is this I read somewhere that you you had were you in Soho house or somewhere with everyone yeah it's somewhere in the strand which I yeah. haven't been okay. in, which is a new Soho house it was really cool and they gave us a whole area so it was very private um, and dark and lovely and we'd all thought oh it would have been great to be in the States but actually I think we were just really lucky you know yeah. and we didn't have to deal with the time zones and the you know all those different things too so yeah, it was yeah. great Can you just tell me a bit more about how you were affected by the shutdown so you yes. didn't film again after the shutdown or did you come back? We didn't come we weren't able to so um, we shut down in March and for one of my episodes we had an inciting incident that we weren't able to we had an avalanche sequence skiing oh. and avalanche sequence that we weren't able to shoot so the editor that I was working with on that Paolo Pandolfo who I, who I do a lot with that was pretty challenging also we couldn't be in the same room so we were kind of in bedrooms at home trying to go how can we make this work and how can we creatively try and think our way out of this huge difficulty and I'm really thrilled with what we came up with it was wonderful we learned yeah. a lot from it it was great which yeah. episode was that that kind of it was it, the penultimate one episode, episode nine. nine people don't seem to miss it which is great well yeah I suppose um, if you don't know it was meant to be there then you know <laughs> exactly well it doesn't I, I don't think it feels like it's missed so we treat it kind of as a as a personal thing that you realize happened to him yeah yeah but we don't we don't experience it in real time but yes it was a lot of restructuring and trying to be clever and was hard and look it, in many ways honestly not to sound too Pollyanna-ish but I was really grateful to have something so creatively challenging to focus on at the beginning of that first COVID wave oh, because it was frightening and overwhelming and we were all stuck at home so I was kind of doing 14 hour days in one bedroom and my partner who was cutting a, a different show was in another bedroom you know and children fighting for kitchen space to try and do their homeschooling and I want to obviously talk a bit more about war specifically but just generally I mean joining the crown you joined in season three it's it's yeah. uh, obviously a huge popular show very well established show by this point so just yes. your role as the director going in in season three to, to direct a, uh, two episodes towards the end of the run yes what's that like for you as a process going in on a show 
that is already well-established, award-winning, to pick it up? What was that like it's, for you just to start off? Honestly, it's quite overwhelming. And my question to them first off was essentially, why me? I mean, what is it that you're seeing in my work that you think can contribute? And it ended up being an, a, um, an incredible fit. And I really give Suzanne Mackey in particular and Peter credit for that. Um, they were very interested in the way I worked as a director and the way my work spoke to them and they felt it could be a really interesting fit. And it was. And, and Peter also gave me the choices of those episodes. There were, there were a number to choose from. And I particularly responded to the moon landing one. And I loved the idea of doing the finale. I'd worked with Olivia before and knew how brilliant she was. And I was a long-term fan of Helena's. And that was a really good decision. That was a great kind of combination. Um, and the moon landing one was, it was very personal to me. My dad was in the seminary, obviously, before I was born. He's ended up having seven children. But he, he went in for about four and a half years. And he always talked about that when we were kids, his kind of crisis of faith and what happened to him when he decided he didn't didn't want to stay. His sister actually was a nun for 12 years. So it was very, you know, strongly Catholic. Um, and she also left. Um, but I've, I've grown up around those, those kind of conversations about the difficulties of maintaining faith and what it brought up for you and whether it was a good thing or not. And I, you know, I'd been staunchly anti-Catholic. Um, I couldn't see a place for women in the church. <laughs> But I felt that that, that really spoke to me. Um, and, and it was interesting because I, I remember other, other people at the time saying, oh, it's just a whole lot of people watching television about, about something. You know, I was worried. I was thinking, well, everyone knows the moon landing was successful. How do I provide some tension with that? And what is it that it speaks to him? But it's one of the things I discovered about the show is that Peter's writing has incredible depth to it. And um, it kind of reveals itself to you very slowly as you kind of, as you do the layers, you do the scene, even in the edit, you, you keep discovering more possibility in the work and that's really why I wanted to stay on it I found that the strength of the writing was was extraordinary in terms of taking a, a very big hard to pinpoint almost kind of esoteric idea or theme but showing it through this incredibly personal journey uh, which is what we all what for me what that's the kind of idea that you want to achieve when you're watching something as an audience you want to have that transcendent experience and I, I felt that, oddly enough that that was being reached for me through the royal family which was not something that I ever expected to feel about watching a show about them. And you sense. mentioned like why they wanted you. I mean, are, are you able to come on and, and bring your own kind of flair to to the show and in, in your the way you film the show and, and edit it? Very much. I mean, you 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 have you know there are certain there are certain pieces in play. The cast exists as they are, and you know there are certain things in the look. But they were extraordinarily encouraging about in the individual voice of the director, and they've continued with that. And for me. I think it's one of the huge successes of the show. I mean, really, you work side by side with Peter right through to delivery. And so you have a huge say in how your episodes are finished and the kind of tone and um, visual scope of them. And it's great. I mean, there are certain kind of classic crown ideals, but, but each season, Peter cont continues to push us and encourage us to go outside those boundaries and to be more experimental and more contemporary. And I talk particularly in that first season about wanting to be a little looser and freer and less formal and he was very open to that so that was great and I found that was a kind of a, a slightly wild spontaneity that could happen particularly 
with Helena, who's just brilliant at improvisation. And as long as it was within the bounds of his intent, of the writing's intent, it was great. And I, and you know, that's that's pretty joyful freedom to have for any director to feel that you can experiment and push the edges of the envelope. And so, I mean, tell me just generally when you come to season four and, and you've got three episodes ahead of you, and and I guess this is possibly the, the season everyone has been waiting for because you not only have um, you know Gillian Anderson obviously playing Margaret Thatcher, but Diana is introduced, oh. Emma Corrin obviously, who, who's is just fabulous. How do you approach season four? You know, do you have team talks and and you lay out you know that I guess what the plan is? How how do you approach it as you gear up to film the season? Well, yeah, I mean, all all of the directors are very close, and we all talk about what we're doing, what we're planning, and we talk a lot with Peter um, and Suzanne and Una, who's the um, producer who runs the the scripts basically with Peter. And so we we constantly check in. We had a, a lot of discussion at the beginning about how to introduce Diana. I mean, Peter was ringing me when we were doing season three and talking about um, that beautiful episode that Ben Karen directed, Fairy Tale, and how he how he saw that. And he was ringing me saying, I've written an episode about Margaret that I really want you to do. And he was already describing that while I was still shooting season three. So because he works, like at the moment, he's ringing me a lot about season six. And I'm like, okay, just need to stay on this one for a minute. But it's it's kind of fantastic too because it does inform back to what you're doing. We talked a lot about, I guess, the Diana effect, the, the, the triangulation of the three women. So the Queen being pushed by Thatcher, and sometimes Peter would express it like this: "It's like it's like with Diana, a pathogen enters the house, and no one they welcome it openly. It's their virus, I guess." And so we all looked at what that might do. The pressure cooker that that they felt that they selected the best, the right. It, it all looked perfect on paper um, when she came into the family and our job was to let that unsettling tension start to to begin of what that person might be like you know I think you can get a perhaps more personalities that might have been more obedient been more open to the structure of the palace um, but I think it, there was a slight a perfect storm of her needs versus their expectations and I don't know that anyone could have necessarily foreseen how popular she was going to be but that's the other thing that we talked a lot about is how the public all over the world just grabbed onto her. I mean, it's really beautiful. There's a, the, that episode that Julian Gerald does in, in Australia and you just see the crowds and it's all about her. It's all about her. And for any person, let alone someone like Charles, who's already spent most of his life in the waiting room, that would have been pretty tough. And so it was how do we reflect that and what do we do? And then how does it start to separate them as a couple, which is where we came to the war episode. And war was really the culmination of, of that triangulation of women and, and what happened and Thatcher essentially being forced out and the, and and that very uncomfortable discussion between she and the Queen about that sense of, um, I think the line is, it's about being nothing. I have nothing. I am nothing without my job, which the Queen doesn't understand because her job is her life. It's, it's never taken away. And then we also wanted to start to contrast Diana's anxiety about the New York trip and going on her own and the sense for them that that was fine. It kind of occupied her over there, but not realising that that would open up a whole nother continent of love for this, you know, kind of extraordinary young person. How do you approach a specific episode? You've obviously by this point done four episodes across season three and season four. So when you come to discuss war, what kind of details are you looking at? How are you taking Peter's script and, and thinking, how am I going to shoot this? Well, a lot of it is to do with the complexities of how the stories sit alongside each other. Because they're very, the, the scripts are very dense and rich. One of, our, one of our challenges was how do we, in a sense, go between Thatcher and Diana and the Queen without it feeling bumpy? And you know, you're slightly restricted 
restricted by the the real timeline. So you're trying to fit that in. But it was also, I wanted to, in a sense, reflect the isolation of each of those three women and how differently they coped with that. You know, the, the anxiety and fear for Diana and her need to be seen by the public, the, the Queen's need for kind of solitude and peace and breath and her discomfort with emotionality. And the idea of Thatcher, I guess, in a sense, almost being hoisted on her own petard. She, she never saw the house beach coming. So that there were a lot there were a lot of things about the kind of structural flow of it and the space that we gave those women within rooms, the discomfort, you know, the scene at the end where the Queen presents Thatcher with the with the medal was, you know, normally that would be in a ceremonial state in front of other people. And it was a really deliberate choice to make it just the two of them in a room. So there was no audience to view it and, and it helped to add to the discomfort of it. And I remember even at the end, Gillian and I were having a discussion, she felt that, you know, she should she should say your majesty which she, she does in the scene and we took it out in the edit but I loved the uncomfortability of the ending that there was kind of nothing left to say and she just walked away and she did this beautiful thing where she just half looked back it was great within the within the moment of it and what the queen was left with because I think that was a very challenging relationship for both of them and unexpectedly so it's really nicely set up earlier on in the series where she's she's excited about a woman being in the job <laughs> her first meeting with Thatcher isn't great doesn't go as planned so yeah there was a lot of that and just trying to tie in you've got a, a, a big driving political story which which needs the kind of scope and scale of what it's like to be in Westminster in the Houses of Parliament and also what it's like to be in Downing Street and, and having to do that goodbye speech which is so known and this is one of our challenges is some of the things we reenact are, are so well known and we try and avoid we try and look beyond that curtain so what were the things you didn't see outside of that speech or what happened afterwards but there was an amazing moment where Thatcher gets in the car and the footage and you see her face drop. And so Gillian and I worked really much a, a lot towards that difference between public face and private face. And that's really what for all three characters we were trying to unveil. And I mean, I guess particularly Diana's kind of New York trip. I mean, can you tell me a bit about how you, you shot and filmed that? Because like like you've just said, you know, when people are so aware of the real events and you have to kind of, you know, it's, it's one level to, to dramatise these in the scripts, but it's another to film them and, and film things that people are perhaps quite familiar with and can just google i mean we often make not jokes kind of terrifying reminders to each other on set about well someone could just watch the show and pause it and then google it and see the video of what happened so we're con we're, we're very conscious of the choices that we're making and again i felt it was about the emotion of that trip you know we knew that she'd gone on concord but there's no footage of that so how was that for her what was that private moment like for her what were her, her anxieties like we knew that she talked about how anxious she was but you only see great footage of her so it was contrasting the the private journey with the with the public face and of course it was a challenge I lived in New York for a number of years so I know it really well I knew the areas that we were supposed to be recreating and I was incredibly anxious but when they came back with those initial photographs from Manchester and I looked at a lot of American films that have been shot there I thought this can really work and I was really proud of what we pulled off I think it was great and sometimes for me it's about creating shots or sequences where they feel messy and documented and real um, and less kind of proscenium and big and clean which for me can slightly give away where you are um, so it was very deliberate there's a, there's an opening sequence in New York where you see a lot of the traffic and we were able to close off a whole avenue in, in Manchester and for me having lived there it's about what those avenues are like it's all one way traffic and lanes and lanes of it which we don't have here so that being able to do those kinds of things I feel visually kind of earths the audience into believing where they are and just the kind of scale and glitz of it and, and putting you know we've got a great 
great visual effects team. So I knew that we could put Central Park outside her hotel window. And we shot that in central London. So Hyde Park was it was a kind of marker of what we could do. And, you know, it's, you just got to kind of be creative in the way you approach it. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I think the biggest thing for me was at the ending, it wasn't written to finish on Diana. It was written to, to finish on a kind of family photo that you were aware of her in it. But more and more as we worked through the episode, and we did that Christmas sequence very late in the shoot. I felt incredibly strongly. I did the photo as scripted, but I felt incredibly strongly that I wanted to feel, I wanted to, to, to understand how isolated she felt. And so it was a very deliberate decision to bring her down late and bring her into the room late and, and have everyone not just ignore her. It's like she has no presence. I mean, she looks stunning, but they don't even see, they don't see the problem in their future. And so I was trying to find a way to visually represent that, what that young woman looked like. And, and because, because we have so much future knowledge as an audience, we know what's happening. We feel like we know the story. That That's that's the challenge for us directorially and, and for, for Peter and I in the, in, the, in the structure of it as to how to keep that tension going in a story you believe you know what the ending is. And so when we shot that and the DP, I was w- uh, working with Ben Wilson, who's just brilliant. And I was saying to him, I, I want to do the shot on Diana and I need to do it at this frame rate and I need to do it as a kind of track-in and slight pullback. I just want the world to feel and he's like, okay, okay, okay. But we, <laughs> we tried to do this in quite limited time. But also she was just I spoke to her and said, this is the moment, this is what I'm trying to achieve emotionally. She was like, great, got it. And she, I thought she was astonishing. And then as soon as Peter saw her, he was like, yeah, right. I, you know, I get why that's there. So you take those risks. Not everything that you present to him does he go, yes, great. But it's it's good to have those pockets of things that you're, you, it's nice to surprise the creator of the show and say, look, I, I did this. I think there's something in it. Let's look at it together. And, and he loves that. So I think the fact that the show is very open to directors working like that is great. You know, obviously it's a show that you've come back to and and you're filming uh, more and and season six by the sounds of it as well I mean what is it for you as a director that you have enjoyed working on the show I mean I I guess it's well known that it's it's quite a reasonably funded show so that you have things that you maybe couldn't do on other shows um, as a director but I mean just uh, you know from a a craft and a you know being able to film a show like this I mean what is it that has kept you coming back time again and the success of the show that has been passed on to the viewers as well yeah I think it's I mean it's got such an extraordinary global reach as one thing but for me, it's I really believe in the stories that we're telling. I, I find them very moving, unexpectedly moving. When I first sat down to watch The Crown, when it first came out, I thought, oh, I'm not going to like this. You know, I'm not a royalist. I'm not really into the monarchy. This is going to be boring. And literally it started and I saw John Lithgow as Churchill and just thought, that's genius. And I was kind of hooked from that moment in. I think the show has... It combines this this extraordinary history in a way that I think is kind of mesmerizing and, and a bit of a gift to the audience in terms of we can show a lot of English history. Yes, it's through the, the veil of the royals. I think there's so much endless fascination with this antiquated idea of monarchy. And I think the questions that the show brings up about that are really interesting. It's probably one of the best produced shows I've ever worked on. So there's an enormous support for you creatively. You have a producer alongside you and they, they have a, a real investment in the story that you're telling and how you're trying to tell it and the scale of that, not just in the kind of practicalities of getting it done. So I really love that. Just, it's a really fun job. And I think for me, we get great results. I'm really proud of the stories that we're telling. It's a fascinating show. And yeah, I think season four was just another level, wasn't it? Because it's it's now into that public consciousness of, oh, I, yes. I kind of remember that. And, and like you say, that's, that's now one of the challenges you have is as we get closer to the present, you know, it becomes more... Um, 
and memorable from our own experiences and, and how we viewed these events and these people. So it's fascinating to see. Yeah, I mean, well, particularly that. with Diana, we we know we know you know we know what's coming. So it's that that is hard. And and as you say, and we're also in generations now that remember very clearly or feel that they remember very clearly. So that's also a challenge too. Is is what's stuck in people's memories versus what we know did happen. It's getting trickier to to walk that line. I think there was a lot more latitude and perhaps openness and forgiveness for the for the early seasons. Um, this is a harder thing. But I also think the closer we're getting to the more difficult stuff, the more enticing it is for an audience. That's all for this episode. You can hear more discussions by tuning in to the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 